We are in Galatians. Last week we just did the first 10 verses. Tonight we'll, we'll cover the rest of chapter 1. So starting with verse 11 of Galatians 1. We're going verse by verse. One way to look at the book of Galatians is it can be divided into three very distinct parts. The first third, which is chapters 1 and 2, is Paul's story of learning the true gospel and defending the true gospel. So the first two chapters are very autobiographical. It's Paul talking about his own story, specifically the story of how he came to know Jesus and how he has done his best to defend the gospel ever since. The second half, or the second third, uh, is chapters 3 and 4, and it's about Paul proving from Scripture that the gospel is better than the law. The law is necessary. The law is the word of God. He's not trying to throw it away. He's just saying, if all you have is the law, then you don't have enough. You need the gospel. The gospel uh, fulfills the law, as Jesus said, and is necessary for salvation. So you might say the first third is autobiographical, and the second third is doctrinal, And the third third is ethical or practical because the third third is about if all that's true, then how should we live? If the gospel is the way to salvation, if the gospel is the truth, then what does it mean to live by the gospel? And none of these three, especially those second two, are are things that most Christians are familiar with. We get to that second third and we say, well, I I don't live by the law of Moses. Why do I need to worry about this? And when we get there, I'll show you why we need to worry about it. Because even though most Gentile Christians like us have never worried about whether or not we get to eat bacon or shrimp or things like that that are on the bad list in the kosher uh, diet. That's not a problem for us. Even so, we have our own way of bringing legalism into our religion, into our walk with Christ. And then that third part, how should we live according to the gospel, that is especially necessary because most people don't understand what the gospel really means for daily life. We know the gospel means here's how you get saved. Here's how you know you're forgiven. Here's how you can know you're going to heaven. All that's good, but the gospel wasn't just meant to be a starting point. It's meant to be the way you run the race. And we'll talk about that when we get to that third. And that will come eh, several weeks from now. All right. So this week and next, we'll look at that first third, uh, the autobiographical section. And I'll just tell you up front, there are times when Paul sounds arrogant. I don't believe he was. I think it's just a, it's a lost in translation thing, partially because of the different languages, but partially because of the situation of life. None of us has ever been in the situation Paul is in when he's writing this book. See, Paul has just gotten through last week, we looked at it, at it that there's only one gospel that's saved. Remember? He said, how, how can you foolish Galatians be turned away to a different gospel as if there is a different gospel? He says there's only one gospel that saves. And some of those people he's writing to might be saying, well, how do we know you're right about that? How do we know that your gospel is the only true one? So Paul knows that one of the things he has to do is defend his own apostleship. He has, to, he has to be able to tell them, you can trust what I told you months ago when I first led you to salvation. You don't need anything else other than what I told you. And in order for you to believe that, you need to believe that I am who I said I was. I mean, one way to look at it is, if you met a guy who told you he was a doctor, 
And then he told you, you know, if you rub Vicks VapoRub on the bottom of your feet, you'll never have a heart attack the rest of your life. And you'd say, oh, okay, great. But then you find out that he's a doctor of music, right? <laughs> or, or a doctor of preaching or something like that. You'd be, oh, well, never mind then. Well, the same situation was going on in Galatia. This guy shows up and says he's an apostle, and this is the true gospel of salvation, and he baptizes you, and he tells you now you're a believer in Jesus, and you're going to heaven when you die, and you're part of the kingdom of God. And then you come to find out these other people show up and say, no, 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 we're actually from Jerusalem. Paul's not. We actually know the real apostles. Paul's never even spent any time with them. He's telling you lies. There's more you have to do. Well, you can understand why the Galatians were a little shaken up and why they started to think, well, maybe we should get all of our males castrated and maybe we should castrated. <laughs> circumcised, circumcised, circumcised. Sorry. Sorry. I grew up in the country. Sorry. I, 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 you know, I saw that done, not to humans, but yes. Um, you're never going to get past that, are you? <laughs> Just try. Try your best. Maybe we should. Maybe we should follow all those rules. Maybe we should devote ourselves to being the best Jews we can be, even though we're not Jewish. So Paul has to write to them and say, first of all, let me tell you why you can believe what I told you. All right? That's what he's about to do here. And in many ways, the question Galatians presents to us modern-day Gentile Christians is, is our gospel the true one, or is it something else? So considering the decline of Christianity in our country, even in the so-called Bible Belt, you have to ask yourself, is Christianity declining because we've stopped preaching the true gospel and we're, we're showing the world something else? All right, so with all that long introduction, verse 11, Paul writes and says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That's an interesting term, isn't it? Man's gospel. What would man's gospel be if Paul had preached man's gospel? Well, we know, because there are other religions in the world today not created by God. What do they have in common? There's a, there's a lot of things they don't have in common. Some religions have multiple gods. Some have one god. Some have no real personal deity at all. But here's what they have in common. God or spiritual enlightenment are out of reach. Only those who follow the true path can get there. Now, so far, that agrees with Christianity. But here's where it diverges. Number three, in man's religion, in man's quote-unquote gospel, the true path is found in a certain kind of knowledge or morality or achievement or some combination of all three. In other words, it's something you have to learn or believe or do. Number four, in man's gospel, the people who reject the true path are enemies that must be defeated in order for the true path to win. That's another sign that you're... you're you have a man-made religion that anybody who's on the outside, anybody who doesn't believe is an enemy who must be defeated. And defeating that enemy is part of you reaching righteousness, is part of your side, the side of truth winning in the end. So that's what Paul came from. Remember, why, why else was Paul going around murdering Christians? Well, because he believed that they were the enemies of the true path. Why did he emphasize so much his adherence to the law, uh, his status as a Pharisee, his zeal for God? Because that's how you get salvation. You earn it. You climb the mountaintop, and if you're better than most, 
you have a chance of getting there. That's man's gospel. Paul says, that's not what I was doing at all. I was bringing you something different than that. In verse 12, he writes, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what he's about to start doing here is tell his story of how he met Christ and how he learned the gospel. And the point he wants you to see is he did not hear some Christian preacher and think, you know, that's a pretty good message. I'm going to put my own spin on it and make it even better. Because let's face it, that's what most false teaching in the church is. It's hearing the true gospel and saying, I can do even better than that. I can, do, I can, I can repeat most of that, but then I can add my own spin on it that will make it even more attractive. That's false teaching. That's what you encounter in the church. Paul says, I didn't do that. I received it through a revelation. His point is, I didn't get it from a man. God gave it to me himself. And that's part of his way of saying, I'm a true apostle because God met me in person and gave me the truth and sent me out to preach it. Now he doesn't, here's the interesting thing. He doesn't ever say specifically when he got the full gospel. We know the story of Paul's salvation, right? We know he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The way Paul tells the story, I mean, the way Luke tells the story, and it's told three times in the book of Acts, it sounds like it was a very brief encounter. Paul's riding on his horse on the way to Damascus, and suddenly he sees a light. It knocks him off his horse. He's blinded. He hears a voice say, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why, have you why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And a couple more sentences, and then it's over. And then he goes into Damascus, and Aeneas heals him. Ananias heals him, but could it be that that lasted longer than Luke tells us, that he had time during that point when he's on the ground on the Damascus Road to hear the whole gospel story? Or was it more a case of, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then later, once I believed in him, I started reading the Word of God in a new way. I now believed in Jesus and I had the Holy Spirit in my heart. This book of the law that I had known my whole life, that I had devoted my life to studying, suddenly it looked completely different. Suddenly, when I would read Isaiah, I would see, oh, Jesus is the suffering servant. Oh, he's the, the one who was born of the virgin. And when I'd see, when I'd read Ezekiel, oh, he's the dry bones coming together and, and springing to life and so forth. And on down through the Old Testament, oh, Psalm 22, oh, that's about Jesus being crucified. They've pierced my hands and feet. Maybe that's how it happened. In fact, that's what I think Paul is actually saying. I don't think it all happened at once. I think it happened over a period of time, and I'm going to show you when I think that happened. Either way, his ultimate point is, I got this gospel directly from God, and then later, much later, when I finally was able to come up to the real apostles, the, the original apostles, and I, I heard their gospel, lo and behold, it was the same. So how else can you explain that except that God really spoke to me? Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, of my fathers. See, I'm going to say it again. What Paul was so proud of back then was, I love my faith so much. I am so devoted to my God that I'm willing to kill for him. 
that's a sign that you have man-made religion. If your sign of, of your, your spiritual maturity is, look how much I hate people who don't believe like me, then that's man-made religion, because that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught the true gospel, which was, you don't hate your enemies, you seek to love them to Christ. There's a big difference, isn't there? Now, how many, how many uh, preachers of the Christian gospel sound more like the old Paul than the new Paul? How many Christians themselves, when we sit around talking, sound more like the old Paul than the new Paul? We need to ask ourselves that question. Let me also point out, you may not know this, but some of you probably do. There are a lot of people, some of them who call themselves Christians, many of whom don't, who hate Paul today. A lot of people who will say, oh man, I don't like Paul. He's the one who messed it all up. Jesus was was the son of God, or Jesus was at least a really good person, and then along comes Paul and takes his message and distorts it, puts his own spin on it and makes it into something different. Anybody here ever heard that kind of stuff about Paul? Paul's anti-women, he's, he's, he's cruel, he's harsh, he's arrogant, he's ever, you know, if not for him, Christianity would be fine. Okay, so that, what that assumes is, all right, let's just follow that logic, that a guy who as a young man, was a superstar. Everybody he cared about thought he was the best. He was rising up in the ranks of Judaism. He was, he was in every way fulfilling his every desire. Just like little boys now want to be Major League Baseball players or rock stars. Well, that's what a Jewish boy wanted to be. He wanted to be what Paul was. And you're telling me that Paul gave all that up to hijack the message of a guy who'd been crucified and then went on to be beaten, stoned, lashed, imprisoned, shipwrecked, impoverished, chased, hunted, lived a, a, you know, a materially miserable life for something he didn't actually believe? Is that what you're telling me? Because somehow he thought that was better than what he had before? I, I just don't buy it. It doesn't add up. Paul, whatever else you think about him, Paul believed that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul believed that Jesus gave him the true gospel, and he was willing to die for the sake of it. All right, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I want to point something out for all of you English majors or English teachers or you know, people who made B or better in English. Um, verses 10 through 14, the subject is Paul. I did this, I did that. In verse 15, the object is Paul. God is the subject. God's the one who did the action. What do I mean by that? What difference does that make? Is your Christianity something you do, or is it something that God is doing in you? That's another sign. See, in man-made Christianity, man-made religion, it's something you do. I go to this church. I practice these disciplines. I have this particular title in my church. I went through these rituals, whether it's baptism or confirmation or whatever the case may be. I do these good deeds. I don't do these sins. 
things. That's my Christianity. You ask somebody, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? And if they start mentioning commandments and rituals and doctrines, you can say, well, that's all fine. But what has God done in your life? Because real, the real gospel is not what you do. It's what Christ is doing in you. So Paul says, when he who set me apart before I was born called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me, I did not immediately conceive, uh, consult with anyone. His point is, I got saved and I didn't run off and ask the apostles, is this real? I knew it was real. It happened to me. It, it changed my life. Now in verse 17, he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now here's where it gets complicated for people who like things neat. Because you've got two different stories of Paul's early Christian life. One is in Acts chapter 9, and that's written by Luke. Presumably told to him by Paul, because he and Paul were friends and they traveled together. The other version is this version right here in Galatians chapter 1. Now there's no outright contradictions, but there are some things that are in one that aren't in the other that have to be reconciled. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So in Acts chapter 9... I won't make you turn there, but in Acts chapter 9, it says Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then Ananias came and healed him, and he got baptized, and immediately he started preaching. And then it says, some, day, some days later, they tried to kill him. The Jews came to kill him, and they lowered him in a basket outside the walls, and he escaped. All right? But Paul here says, I got saved, and then I went away to, to Arabia. Now, and then three years later, it says, went to Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a moment. So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, obviously, Paul got saved, started preaching, and at some point said, you know, I need to go do some studying. I need to get away. I need to get away and figure out more about what this gospel is and who Christ is and what he's done for me. I need to be better at this. And he went away to Arabia for three years, I believe, to study to pray, and I believe that's when God just opened up that whole gospel to him. And then he comes back to Damascus, begins preaching again, and that's when they tried to kill him. That's how you can reconcile those two stories. And the reason I get that is, in verse 23 of of Acts 9, Luke says, when many days had passed. I think that's his way of accounting for that time when Paul went away to Arabia for three years. Wish we knew more, but that's, that's the way I reconcile it. Verse 18 says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now here's another thing you have to reconcile. Paul says, this is the first time I ever went up to Jerusalem. Now, Acts 9 says the first time Paul went to Jerusalem and met with the apostles. They didn't want to meet with him because they didn't believe he was truly saved. And Barnabas had to be the intermediary, had to, had to, had to run interference and bring the two together. Obviously, that's when this happened. That's what Paul's talking about here. He doesn't mention Barnabas here because that's not his point. He's not giving a straight-up autobiography. He's trying to show specifically, I didn't get my gospel from anybody else. That's all he's concerned about here. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, Uh, he meets with Peter, and he meets with James, the brother of of Christ. And 
And that's when he, I believe, was able to say, okay, this is what I understand from the scriptures. And they were able to say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then fill him in on details that he didn't know. Things that are written in the Gospels today that Paul wasn't privy to. Events in Jesus' life that he hadn't heard of. Don't you wish you could be there for those 15 days to listen to those three men dialogue back and forth and to talk these things through? All right, verse 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Just for reference sake, Syria is where Antioch was, and that's where Barnabas and Paul first began to preach. Antioch is the church that launched them as missionaries. And then Cilicia is where Tarsus was. That's where Paul was originally from. So the story goes, and we know this from Acts, that when Barnabas went down to Antioch and found this church with Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, he said to himself, I know somebody who'd be great here, Paul. And he went to Tarsus, found Paul, and brought him back to the region of Syria. And that's how Paul ended up there. Now, verse 23. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So what he's saying there is, at this stage, I've been saved for three years plus. I still haven't met any of the Christians in Judea. Of the apostles, at this point, I've only met Peter and James. But the people have heard about me all throughout Judea, all those little towns where there are churches, they're glorifying God because of what they hear in my story. When I was a young preacher, I mean, wet, wet, wet behind the ears, I was pastoring for a brief time in the church I grew up in, just outside of my home, you know, the greater Yoakum area, you know, the larger Yoakum metropolis. Um, and my dad took me to meet his dad's uncle, so my grandpa's uncle. I'd never met him before. I can't remember his first name. It's been a long time. I think it was Uncle Willie, but he was a character back in the old days when he and Grandpa, they were about the same age. When they were young men, he was a bootlegger, literally. The only bootlegger I've ever met in my life, as far as I know. I mean, just a, a rascal. That's, that's a kind way to put it. And even after Prohibition ended, I mean, he was still just one of those, one of those guys who was always right on the edge of being thrown in jail. But late in life, he met a Christian woman and got saved. And so my dad took me to meet him because he hadn't been around his Uncle Willie since he got saved. And he was really saved. You know, you, you've met people probably who can put on the act or the show. You could tell this man was redeemed. He was a new creature in Christ. He, was, he, he had learned to play. He was living in a nursing home and had taught himself to play guitar so he could sing Christian songs that he wrote himself. That tells you something. Um, well, not too long after that, he passed away, and I was asked to do his funeral. A guy I've met just one time. And so all I knew to do was tell that story and talk about, if you want proof that there is new life, if you want proof that Jesus wasn't joking when he said, be born again, then I, I give you my grandpa's Uncle Willie. 
And I told the whole story. And afterwards, this is the sad part of the story. Afterwards, you know, I'm standing outside. We, we loaded the casket onto the, into the hearse and we're waiting for everybody to get ready so we could go out to the grave. And people are coming by and telling me, you know, good job, young man. And, and this guy I'd never met before comes up to me, um, kind of an older fella. Uh, and he said, you know, that sounds really nice to have a new life. And I said, well, you can. And he said, nah, not me. And right about then, I, the guy's friend was about 15 feet away, and he said, hey, let's go, let's go. And he left. And I, that haunts me that he walked away. All I can know is, okay, I did what I was supposed to do, and the rest was up to him. But I think about that constantly, about how many people just don't believe that the gospel is real, that you can have brand new life. You can be a brand new person. See, Paul's, the change in him was so great that he said, people all over the region of Judea glorify God because of me. That's not bragging. That's glorifying. That's saying, look what God has done. If you want proof that my gospel is real, look at how my life changed and it's changing other people's lives. I do need to say this before we're done, though. It doesn't mean you have to have a testimony as dramatic as Saul of Tarsus or Uncle Willie in order to cause people to glorify God. Aren't you glad? I mean, I, I hate this, but there, we love stories like that so much and we tell them so often. I, I know there are Christians who grew up saying, gosh, I wish I'd have gotten into more trouble before I met Jesus. I, I wish I'd have you know, done some more bad things. And that's so ridiculous. I used to feel that way. I've known people who inspired me to seek after Jesus, who I didn't know a single bad thing they'd done. I'm sure they sinned. They weren't perfect. But as far as I, I knew, they were the most righteous folks I'd ever met. And yet their righteousness was so compelling. It wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, wrap your hair up in a tight little bun and get angry at anybody who looks like they're having any fun. It was, it was, it was compelling. It was loving. It was joyful. It was you felt like you were more alive when you were around them. You, you, when you were around them, you, you wanted to do good things. And, and that's what we're called to be. We're called to live lives that demonstrate that the gospel is true. And so again, we always need to ask ourselves, is your Christianity something you're doing or something God is doing in you? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for the dramatic change you made in Paul. Lord, for revealing to him the gospel in the way that you did so that he, through the gifts that you gave him, could share it with us, could make it plain to us through these, these letter, letters in the Bible that, that tell us the truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would examine our own hearts and know uh, that the gospel is real and that it changes lives. Let us never uh, lose sight of that. Let us never get settled for mere religion. But instead, Lord, constantly, constantly keep coming back to the gospel that changes lives. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us and of our church and of all churches in this country. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.